0: Researchers Kara Powell, Jake Mulder, and Brad Griffin in their book Growing Young argue that the three ultimate questions that keep today's teenagers and emerging adults awake at night are this. Who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference do I make? Now that first question is a question of identity. Who am I? That second question is a question of belonging. Where do I fit? And that final question is a question of purpose. What difference do I make? So again, these sort of three ultimate questions that these researchers provide, and they explain that it's not just young people who deal with these questions. These are the ultimate questions of all people, but they're just more acutely felt by the youth. But these three questions, again, are a question of identity, A question of belonging and a question of purpose or meaning, you could say. Now, the middle question, where do I fit, is very significant for us this morning because of the text that we are studying. This text in Colossians chapter 1 deals with a sense of belonging. Now, we all want to belong. We want to belong to a family or a tribe or a group of acceptance. Um, If you can think about a first day at school, maybe at a brand new school that you went to, you would know that anxiety that you probably felt or that stress about, man, who are going to be my people? Where's my group? How am I going to fit in here? And, And you felt that deep inside. You wanted to belong. You wanted to connect. You wanted to be accepted. We all want to belong. And the reason for that is because alienation... Or estrangement, being separated relationally is a painful experience. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit this morning. Last week, we studied verses 15 through 20 in chapter 1, and we studied this amazing hymn about Jesus Christ. And we learned last week that all of creation, everything in our universe, has been alienated from its creator because of sin. And that means that among humans, there is a universal existential desire for belonging, a desire to be reconciled. Now that's a big fancy word, and we talked about it a little bit last week, but simply put, when you think about reconciliation, or being reconciled, It's a term that deals with relationship. When a relationship has gone off the rails and there's been a a divide in that relationship, a chasm in that relationship, a a fracture in that relationship, when things are fixed and repaired, you call that being reconciled. So I mentioned last week that if uh, a spouse was separated from their spouse because of some issue, and they worked things out and came back together, we would say, oh, they reconciled. They've reconciled. So reconciliation, again, deals with a relationship that's broken now being mended or fixed. And the great news that we ended last week with, the great news of verse 20, is that in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things. And, the news gets even better, Because included in that, all things are people just like you and me, humans who are yearning for belonging. And this is the point that Paul is going to now make in verses 21 through 23. Paul is now going to help us to see that in Jesus Christ, people like us can experience Reconciliation to God, that feeling of alienation, that fear of estrangement can be removed and we can be restored to right relationship with the God who created us and knows us and deeply loves us. At the beginning of verse 21, Paul writes these two words. They're very simple, but they're significant. He says, and you. This helps us to see that Paul is now making things personal. Now he's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to these believers in a city called Colossae 2,000 years ago. And Paul here at verse 21 is now moving from this kind of cosmic view of Jesus as the one through whom God is reconciling all of broken creation, now to the personal application of that truth. And Paul is wanting to say God cares not just about all of creation generically, but God cares about you specifically, individually. And God has a plan in Christ to reconcile you, to bring you in, to let you belong to his family. It's amazing. Jesus, the one who is fixing the brokenness of the entire creation, is simultaneously fixing the brokenness of people just like you and just like me. Paul starts here in this text, in verse 21, by looking back at who these Colossian Christians were before they ever started following Jesus. And as he does, he shows them and he shows us here this morning why we even need reconciliation in the first place if you're a note taker, you can write this down. The need for reconciliation. This is what verse 21 shows us. It shows us our need for reconciliation. Here's the verse, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Let's stop there. Most people don't have a problem acknowledging their own brokenness. The rise in and normalization of therapy proves that point. Most people are totally comfortable saying, hey, I've got issues. I've got problems. I could use some help getting things organized in my life. But the specific kind of brokenness that Paul is referring to in verse 21 is moral and it's spiritual. And that Right there is where a lot of people want to pump the brakes. A lot of people get hung up on that. Sure, they can acknowledge that they've got some baggage from maybe childhood trauma or toxic relationships or inherited tendencies, but they're not willing to concede that they have serious immorality or spiritual bankruptcy in their life. And this is one of the biggest hurdles that people have in coming to Jesus. A lot of people just don't see themselves as that bad or see themselves as in trouble or see themselves as in, being in need of any help from God. And so, why would people then come to Jesus? It's sort of like this. How many of you know, by a show of hands, that eating excessive amounts of sugar is bad for you? Show of hands. Okay. And most of you are not nutritionists. That's kind of just common knowledge, right? If I just eat tons and tons and tons of sugar, it's really bad for me. But here's my question. Is that going to slow any of us down this week on Thursday on Thanksgiving? Like not at all, right? Does that slow most of us down on Sunday morning from eating not just the first but the second donut that we have outside? Now I'm preaching to myself as I wipe sugar off my face. The answer is no, right? Like, we know we probably shouldn't be having all that sugar, but we just do it. But suppose that you go to the doctor and the doctor diagnoses you with type 2 diabetes, and the doctor says, Hey, here's what you need to do. You've got to cut out all of that excessive sugar in your diet. A lot of us are going to sense now a much stronger motivation. A lot of us are actually going to say, I'm done with all of that excessive sugar. We're going to stop eating it, we'll take it out of the diet. And the reason for that is because now we know there's an actual problem. As long as it's just my parents warning me or somebody else warning me that there's this theoretical thing called a cavity in a root canal out there or diabetes or something, I'm not going to be that motivated. But when I realize I've got a problem, suddenly I want to address it. Paul here in verse 21 is looking at the human condition. And he's looking at people although he's talking to Christians, he's talking about prior to them coming to Jesus. So he's he's looking at people outside of Christ and he's saying to you, hey, I need you to understand something. You do have a problem. You do have a problem and it's a moral problem and it's a spiritual problem between you and God. You were once alienated, he writes. Now that's a term that we don't use often, but to be alienated, Speaks of being estranged or being relationally separated. So he says, You've been alienated, and therefore you're in need of reconciliation. Sin, according to the Bible, separates people from God's loving presence. If we go all the way back to the beginning and we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve were created righteous and upright, and because sin had not entered the world, they had a a intimate relationship with their creator. The level of communion that they had with God was unlike anything we experience. It actually tells us in Genesis that they would walk with God in the Garden of Eden during the cool of the day, just talking to God. It's incredible. However, after they sinned, they went and they hid from God in their guilt. That's interesting. They intuitively knew something had changed. They intuitively knew that what they had done when they sinned is they had violated the trust and they had broken the intimacy that they once had with God. It's sort of like a spouse who is unfaithful. Or maybe a child when they disobey their parents. And they know, they think to themselves, if they find out about this, things can no longer be the same. That's how Adam and Eve felt. If God finds out about this, everything has changed. Nothing can be the same anymore. And so they went and they hid from God. And so God comes looking for them. And when God found them, I've got to do air quotes because you can't ever hide from God, but when God comes and he plays their game and he finds them in the garden, God tells them that there are consequences for their sin and now their sin has affected not only themselves, but also the entire creation that they inhabited. And although God covered their sin with an animal sacrifice there in the beginning of Genesis, they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and we know that they were unable to relate to God in the same way that they had related to Him before they sinned. And from that point on, all of us are born into a world that is alienated from God, and we feel that sense of alienation deep in our bones. Rather than knowing that we belong like Adam and Eve before sin, we all sit and wonder, where do I fit? Who do I belong? Where are my people? Now there's more to our predicament. Notice here in verse 21 that prior to coming to Jesus, we weren't only estranged from God, but we were actually opposed to God. Paul writes, you were hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now, that idea that they were hostile in mind, it doesn't mean that all non-Christians spend their days thinking, I hate God or I hate Jesus. Now, some non-Christians perhaps do think that from time to time, but probably not most non-Christians. Most are not violently opposed to the Christian faith, most don't want to burn down churches or eliminate Christianity from the earth, but they are opposed to God nonetheless. When Paul writes that they are hostile in mind, the word mind there refers to a person's mindset, or you could say their disposition, or their mentality that they have. And non-Christians, before you put your faith in Jesus, you have a particular mindset. You have a worldview. You have a way that you operate in the world. And guess what? Because you're excluding God from the equation, you stand opposed to what God wants for you and oftentimes what God wants in the world. Now, we show our opposition to God in several ways. Sometimes it's just as simple as going against our conscience. Okay, We could talk about people maybe who don't know the Bible, and say, how are those people opposed to God? Paul's answer in Romans would be by violating their own conscience. We are created in the image of God, and as image bearers of God, we have an intuitive sense that it's wrong to kill somebody. We have an intuitive sense that it's wrong to lie to somebody or to, yeah, break trust or break promises. And so we violate our own conscience. We go against what God wants. Many people also, knowing God's commands, directly violate them. We go against God's word. God says not to steal, not to lie, not to covet other people's things, not to be unfaithful in relationships. And yet, can any of us here in this room say, nailed that, I've been perfect my entire life on all of those accounts? Of course not. And finally, we show our opposition to God simply by not coming to Jesus. People who have not come to Jesus are standing in opposition to the very plan that God has put in motion in the world to reconcile the world to himself. And so Paul is saying, listen, before these people came to Jesus, they had a mindset that was opposed to God, and that led them to doing evil deeds. Apart from Jesus and outside of a relationship with God through Christ, We center ourselves. We serve the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Daniel is the king. I want to do what's best for me, and I'm willing to even hurt other people in the process. And this centering of ourselves rather than God leads to selfishness and not servanthood, to pride rather than humility, to greed and not generosity, to impatience instead of long-suffering, to hostility instead of peace, and I could go on and on and on. This is why Paul elsewhere says that outside of a relationship with Jesus, people are actually enemies of God. We're opposed to God. We stand in opposition against Him. This is who the Colossians once were, and this is who all of us once were, or perhaps some of us this morning still are. And yet, despite who they were, despite who all of us are, God did something. Look at verse 22. It says, he has now. God has taken action to change things. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So we looked at the need for reconciliation you and I, because of sin, have been alienated from God. Now in verse 22a, we see the means of reconciliation. How did God actually reconcile us? The answer is by the death of Jesus. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The death of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago is the way in which God, our creator, Fixes our broken relationship with Him. It's through the death of Jesus. Paul talks about this in Romans 5. I'm gonna read verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Paul is saying that even though we were enemies of God, through the death of Jesus, God has reconciled us back to himself. This is why the main symbol in Christianity is a cross. We are a cruciform religion. Everything is centered around the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins 2,000 years ago. As Christians, we don't just look to Jesus as our example, although he is certainly that. Nor do we just look to Jesus as our teacher, although he is certainly that. Most fundamentally, we look at Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Because it is through the death of Jesus on the cross that our sin was dealt with. That we can be forgiven and that we can now be reconciled back to our God. My pastor used to say he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. The very thing that caused this separation I've been talking about, this alienation from God, sin, has been paid for through the death of Jesus. And the righteousness that we lacked has been supplied through our Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, Paul is saying this, we were once alienated from God because of our sin, but God has reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus. Now look at the rest of verse 22 in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now we see in the second half of verse 22, the effect of reconciliation. We looked at the need for it. We looked at the means of reconciliation, the death of Jesus. Now we look at the effect of reconciliation. What did it actually do? Well, through the death of Christ... We are made holy and blameless and above reproach or accusation. And Paul says at the beginning of this verse that it was in order to present you as these things. And that statement, in order to present you, points us toward the future. When a Christian, somebody who has put their faith and their trust in Christ to be their Savior and Lord, When a Christian dies and stands before their creator, which all humans are going to do, when that experience happens, they will stand before their creator, God the Father, as, listen to me, holy, blameless, and above any accusation, above reproach. Jesus presents us back to his Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. And this means that when God looks at those of you who are in Christ this morning, he sees you as holy, blameless, and above accusation because he sees you in Christ. Now, Christians, I know that this is like too good to be true, right? It's almost too much to handle. Because you would say, I'm not those things. I'm a mess sometimes. I didn't even want to come today and listen to you preach. I haven't read my Bible all week. I spend countless hours a day in front of my smartphone like this, but I don't even spend five minutes praying. Besides, I'm selfish and short-tempered sometimes. Now, if you're thinking, did my wife call you this week? The answer is no. That was all hypothetical, but that was pretty spot on, right? We all would say, I'm not holy. I'm not blameless. I'm not somebody who's above reproach. If you only knew, right? That's what you want to say. If you only knew the things I'm capable of, the thoughts that I have, the words that I say sometimes. But this is why the gospel is such good news, you guys. The gospel takes our eyes off of ourselves and turns them to Jesus. The gospel causes us to say, you know what, at the end of the day, the most important thing is not me and what I've done, it's Jesus and what he's done for me. Jesus stands even now right in this moment and he looks out across this congregation and he looks at us and he says to the most weary, the most beat down, the most sinful person sitting in this room, he says, I want you. I died for people just like you, but I'm not enough, you say. Jesus says, I know, but I am. And when you die, Jesus wants you to know that you will stand before the Father, but guess what? You will not stand alone. He'll be right there with you. And he will say to his Father, on that day, this one belongs to me. She is mine. He is mine. And the Father is going to say, righteous, enter in to the joy of your Lord. Now, of course, Jesus does not just declare us righteous. The moment we put our faith in him and then just leave us to live ungodly lives for the rest of our life here on earth. No, Jesus loves you enough that he doesn't leave you in your sin. Jesus helps us every single day of our lives as Christians to become practically, meaning in our daily experience, what we already are positionally, meaning how we stand in relation to God. Let me open that up for a moment here. What I'm trying to say from this verse and from others in the Bible is that the moment you put your trust in Jesus, God sees you positionally as now being holy and blameless and above reproach. That is now your position before God. You were once alienated, separated, opposed to God. You believed in Jesus. Now you stand holy, blameless, and above reproach. That is how God sees you right now, in Christ. And yet, at the exact same time, God the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And He changes you incrementally. It's like an amazing sculpture in stone. And God's the artist. And He just, every day, is just dink, 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 just knocking off different edges, smoothing things over, forming you into the image of Christ. And we are progressively, day by day, becoming now what we actually already are in God's eyes. This is the work that God is doing in our lives right now. Chapter 3 is going to be all about that. But the effect of reconciliation, what effect does it have on us is positional righteousness in the eyes of our Creator and growing practical righteousness in the eyes of other people. Okay, let's summarize and look at the last verse. We were alienated from God because of our sin. God has reconciled us back to himself through the death of Jesus in order that we might be made holy and blameless and above reproach. Verse 23, if... Everybody say that word together. If. if. If we've been cruising down the road of good news up to this point, that was the tire screeching on our car. Okay? So far it's been, everything is awesome, and then now you get to this conditional clause at the start of verse 23, and it's if. There's a condition to all of this good news. Everything we've been talking about in verses 21 and 22, reconciliation, forgiveness of your sins, heaven at the end of your life, all of this hinges on what the next verse says. See, reconciliation with God is not a slam dunk for all people. It's not even a slam dunk for all church people. It's not even a slam dunk for all people who have said yes to Jesus verbally in their life. Look at verse 23. Let's read the verse together. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This points us to our final movement this morning. We looked at the need for reconciliation, the means of reconciliation, the effect of reconciliation, and now finally we see the evidence of reconciliation. How do you know that you've been reconciled to God? How would we know that? Well, a big part of the answer is this. You're still here. By here, I don't... I don't mean here at church, although that's a huge part of it. I mean to say you're still here following Jesus. You're still carrying on. You're still trusting in him. You're still fighting the good fight. You're still becoming practically what the Bible says you already are positionally. That's how you know. You're still here. You're still saying yes to Jesus week after week, month after month, maybe year after year. Friend, it's awesome if you've been following Jesus for a few months. We rejoice with you. It's wonderful if you've been following Jesus for years. We rejoice with you. It's wonderful if you've been plugged into the church and saying yes to Jesus for decades. We rejoice with you. But here is the scary reality of what this warning passage is saying to us. None of that is going to matter at all if you're not still saying yes to Jesus on your deathbed. If you're not continuing in the faith for the rest of your life. Reconciliation, this good news of having your broken relationship with your God fixed, that that reconciliation, that belongs only to those who persevere in their faith until the end for the rest of their lives. That's what Paul is saying here. And it is so critical that we sit here for a moment and we process what that means for us. Because there are many people in churches, who who place their their confidence that they are right with God, that they've been reconciled, that they are saved. They place their confidence of their salvation in some past event in their life. That's where the confidence is. What kind of past event? Well, maybe they would say, listen, I was baptized. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm saved. I was baptized as an infant, or I was baptized at a youth retreat when I was in high school, and, and of course I'm a Christian. Of course me and God are right. Somebody else would say I was confirmed in the church. I was, I was brought before the people of God and I was confirmed. They said that I had genuine faith. They said that I was right with God. So of course I am. For others, it's just I was raised in the church. My mom and I mean, my mom and dad have been bringing me here forever. I, I don't know anything else. I've just been always a part of the church. Of course, me and God are okay. For others, it's I went down to the front of the church and I prayed the sinner's prayer during an altar call back in 1997 and everything's good. I did that thing. I checked that box. I got my gold ticket that lets me into Disneyland. I mean, heaven. Me and God are good. For somebody else, it's, uh, you know, I felt like God was with me there during a hard time as a teenager in my first marriage or whatever. Listen, family, your baptism does not guarantee that you're going to heaven. Your confirmation in a church does not guarantee that you're going to heaven. Your good church attendance does not guarantee that you're going to heaven. Your prayer at one point in your life saying yes to Jesus does not guarantee that you're going to heaven. Your experience where you felt like God was with you, does not guarantee that you are going to heaven. Now, any number of those things could be part of the evidence that you're in right relationship with God. I'm not dismissing out of hand any of those things. And in fact, the Bible commends us in being baptized. The Bible commends us in being faithful to a church. The Bible commends us to call out to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness. And all of those are part of the evidence. But where the rubber meets the road is whether or not we continue in the faith. Whether we persevere to the end. Jesus, in his parable of the sower, teaches us this. He teaches us that if your faith doesn't last a lifetime, then your faith was a false one. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 20 and 21. As for what was sown, he's talking about his word being sown in people's hearts. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That's super significant. Jesus is talking about a person who hears Jesus' word and he doesn't say, oh, I'm opposed to that. Oh, I hate Jesus. Oh, I want nothing to do with that. Here's the word of Jesus and receives it, at least at some level, right? And doesn't just receive it and go, oh, it's cool. I'll just kind of put that in my pocket and tuck that away. No, receives it with joy. This is enthusiasm. I want Jesus. Yes to Jesus. This is the greatest day of my life to Jesus type of thing. Receives it with joy. And then check this out. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, for a while, not till the end, for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now there are plenty of people who have an experience like that, what Jesus is talking about. They hear the word of Jesus. They receive it enthusiastically even. They probably connect to a church for a season, and this season could be three months, this could be three years, this could be three decades. And they're saying, how can I serve? And they want to get plugged in, and they're excited, they're raising their hands during worship songs, I mean, they're they're excited, they're here. And then at some point, they walk away, they turn their back on Jesus. Oftentimes, they want nothing to do with Jesus ever again. They're gone. They fall away. Maybe you know people like this. I've known so many people like this in my life. And that person, if there's a person in that place, what do they do? They need to repent and they need to turn to the Lord. Because as Paul is teaching us here, reconciliation belongs to those who make it, those who persevere to the end, remaining steadfast in the faith. Now, why is it that some people do this? Let me give you just a couple of quick reasons, bullet points here. These are coming from Jesus' parable. Persecution can push people away. People go yes to Jesus, other people oppose them, people make fun of them, people come after them, their family rejects them, whatever it is, depending on their situation. Persecution comes and they say, I did not realize it was going to be this hard. Peace, I'm out. I'm done. So persecution can do it. Tribulation can do it. Somebody enters into an incredible personal trial. The death of a spouse or a child. The unraveling of their business. Some other trial in their life. And they say, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this. I thought Jesus was here just to make everything awesome. And they're out. Jesus says the cares of this world can do it just being distracted, just saying, man, there's there's all this other stuff out there. That's what I really want. And we invest our lives in those things, and our hearts are pulled slowly away from Jesus. Jesus says riches can turn your heart from the Lord. Some of us need to be careful. We, we, we need to be careful of what we want and what we pray for. Some of us in this room, you want so badly to be rich. You want so badly to be in complete control financially. The Bible says, listen, that's For the vast majority of people, that's a trap. And for the vast majority of people, you don't have what it takes to handle resources like that. Beyond this, over in Hebrews 3.13, we know that sin can harden our hearts toward the things of God. We can all of a sudden start tolerating a particular sin and living in it and indulging it more and more and more and it grips us and it controls us and it hardens our heart against the Lord because when you're living in that sin, the Holy Spirit's coming after you and he's saying, stop it, stop it, repent, turn. And the more you say, nope, 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 the harder your heart gets. And Hebrews 3.13 warns us that we can harden ourselves into unbelief. There are many ways that this can happen. But the important thing is making sure it doesn't happen. How do we do that? Here's our end. Paul gives it to us right here in verse 23. He says, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Not shifting. Not swerving away from the hope of the gospel. Keeping the true gospel before you constantly. The gospel that tells you, yes, you are a sinner, but in Jesus you are made holy and blameless and above reproach. The gospel that tells you that no no matter how bad the world might be around us, Jesus is Lord over it all and he has a plan for it all and ultimately he's reconciling it all back to God through his death on the cross 2,000 years ago. We keep that hopeful, eternally optimistic gospel truth right in front of us every single day of our lives. You know, you, you never outgrow the gospel. A lot of Christians think that the gospel, when we talk about the good news of what God has done in Christ, we think that that's just like for evangelism. That's so we can get people to come to God. We, we use the gospel to do that, and then they, they think that we we grow up into other more important spiritual realities and spiritual truths. family, the message of Jesus is not just what brings you to him, it's what keeps you in him. When I first became a Christian, I thought the gospel was just just the door that opened up the Christian life. And the second you say yes, you've opened the door, and now you start walking into the Christian life and exploring all these other things. You know what the gospel's more like? It's more like the yellow brick road. Think about that. Dorothy, she had a destination, right? She wanted to get to the wizard. She needed to get to the wizard. And there was a road, the yellow brick road. And the key for her to arriving where she wanted to go was just following the yellow brick road, keeping that in front of her every single day. Now, there were a lot of temptations, there were a lot of things that threatened to cause her to swerve off of the yellow brick road. But as long as she stayed centered in that, she was going to get there. That's what the gospel is like. It's like the yellow brick road. The good news of what God has done for us in Christ, we cannot swerve to the left, we cannot swerve to the right. We have to keep these realities before us every single day, immersing our hearts and our minds in the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And as we do that, We will find that we have strength to endure trials and tribulations, persecutions. We will find that we have perspective that helps us to avoid the pitfalls of the cares of this world and the allure of riches. We will find that we have the fortitude spiritually to continue in the faith like Paul talks about here in Colossians chapter 1. Today we've considered the good news of the gospel together. And we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about the need for reconciliation, the means of reconciliation through Christ, the effect of it that God declares us holy, blameless, above reproach, and simultaneously starts making us holy, blameless, and above reproach. And lastly, we've considered the evidence of reconciliation. That the only surefire evidence there is that somebody has been born again and really, truly belongs to Jesus, is that they just keep showing up. That they keep following, that they keep trusting, that they keep obeying, that they keep surrendering and yielding to themselves over and over and over again. So I close by asking, where are you at today? Are you a person who has declared, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. I am following Jesus. I'm imperfect. I get messed up. I don't always do exactly what I'm supposed to do. But Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my God. And by His grace and in His strength, I'm going to just keep getting up and going back to Him over and over and over again. If that's you, then friend, you're in a great place. And we as a church family are here to just keep on encouraging one another onward. None of us are perfect. None of us do this perfectly. But Jesus is perfect. And the Holy Spirit enables us in this community to just keep growing and staying faithful. And when we get knocked down, get back up again. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian though, You've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus. Friend, what are you waiting for? Jesus is the linchpin of God's plan for the nations, God's plan for actually all of creation. And Jesus is the linchpin of God's plan for you. In Jesus, you can experience fullness. And you can do that today. You can right now in the quietness of your own heart, you can say, I am following Jesus from this day forward. I don't have it all figured out yet, but all I know is I want him. And guess what? That's how it starts for all of us. And we pray that's how it'll start for you today. Let's pray now.